Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Ellen McGirt. Ellen, how are you? (laughs) I am wonderful, and I'm feeling very on point today, in part because our guest today is a CEO who Fortune has been following in one way or another for so many years, and we really admire her. Katrina Lake, the founder of Stitch Fix, I should add that soon she'll transition from CEO to the role of executive chair. Now, before I ask you about your own fashion styles, um, Alan, a quick recap for anybody who may not be familiar with the company. Stitch Fix started as a clothing service for women. Each month you would receive a box in the mail with five items which you could keep or return. They've since expanded to include men and kids and you can shop from them in other ways too. Alan, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and guess that you haven't used Stitch Fix before. You know, Katrina and I met, I don't know, maybe it was four years ago and she tried to sell me on it and I didn't take her up at the time, but all my go-to clothing places, Joseph Banks, Men's Warehouse, they've all gone bankrupt. So, Katrina, maybe I'm ready now. We'll get you signed up. (laughs) Katrina, welcome to Leadership Next. We have a million questions for you now that you're transitioning and stepping down as CEO and pandemic and your vision for the future and all of that good stuff. But would you indulge me if I tell you my favorite Stitch Fix story first? Please do. I'd love to hear about it. About three years ago, I want to say, I was being invited to um, one of our premier conferences for the first time, Brainstorm Tech in Aspen. And I was going to be on stage and I was a little intimidated. So I reached out to my stylist um, and I just posted pictures of Michelle Obama. I said, please, please, God, make me look like Michelle Obama. <laughs> Don't we all want to look like Michelle Obama? I know. Obama? <laughs> and the day, the day I had to leave for Aspen, the box came. I opened it up. I put it all still wrapped in the little paper right in my suitcase and I left. That's the level. Wow. That's the level of faith I have in Stitch Fix. Everything you always fit. look spectacular, Ellen, but how did it go? Everything fit. It was perfect. I didn't look like Michelle Obama. I looked like me, but it was the vibe I was looking for. I have to acknowledge that I had a level of faith in your service and the way that you spoke to me and spoke to my needs over the, the previous year I'd been using the service that I didn't know I had until I needed it. So kudos to you. I love hearing that. Well, thank you. So tell us Before we go into what's happening for you and the next moves that you're making, could you take us back to the early days of the pandemic? Because I I feel like that was a real proof point for so many businesses and for yours in particular when people weren't going out in the world. What happened and what did you learn? Yeah, I mean, we could. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's so nice to hear your voices again. And and yeah, the pandemic, I mean, we could probably spend this entire time talking about it, but it really was the most challenging year of my leadership period. And I mean, there were so many dimensions across which we were seeing a huge amount of change. Like firstly was with our employees, like suddenly, you know, health and safety, which of course had always been a big part of how we operate in our warehouses, suddenly the norm 
norms and expectations around health and safety changed. And, you know, especially in those early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of uncertainty. But, you know, we had to be making decisions with kind of incomplete information. And it's a really, really scary thing to do when we have thousands of employees who are in physical warehouses who are operating every day. And so, you know, one of the things that we did that I'm especially proud of was that we kind of approached it with a lens towards flexibility. And so we gave our employees four weeks of paid time off, which they could use flexibly. In addition to that, we set up a fund that helped our employees. We had an employee relief fund, but we also had a specific fund for parents because childcare was such a challenge during the last year. And if you just imagine the circumstance as an example of a single parent who's mm-hmm. expected to show up at a warehouse every day and school is remote, I mean, it's just, it's an unfathomable challenge that, you know, was not one that we had a playbook for. And so to be able, I think the first bucket was just employees and how do we make sure our employees feel supported during this crazy time? And then there's a second part, which was the business. And, you know, we feel very fortunate that now we can look back. And in a lot of ways, the pandemic ended up being a great, you know, kind of a, I shouldn't say a great thing for the business, but, you know, the idea of being able to try clothes on safely in the comfort of your home is actually a great way to shop in general. And the pandemic mm-hmm. was a great excuse to try that. And so we were really well positioned to capture share during this time. And our business model is one where we learn and we react like that is our business. We learn and react about you. We learn and react about the world. Every time we're sending apparel out, we get feedback from people like you who share with us, like, I love this, um, this fit perfectly, or I have something just like this. And so, you know, we were able to see trends of how people were changing and what people were looking for that was different. And so, you know, we feel fortunate that our business model was one where we turned the inventory relatively quickly and we we're able to react to those trends as we see them. And, you know, the third thing that I would just say is like the pandemic wildly changed consumer behavior and people's openness to try new things. There are people who are trying to buy clothes online for the first time ever during the pandemic and probably some of the highest numbers yet. And so from a business model perspective, you know, we experienced that of our vendors. Our vendors were willing to be more creative with us. We experienced that with our clients. Our clients are willing to be, you know, to try new things. And so, you know, I do think that's probably a little bit of the silver lining of a time of a lot of disruption is that people are kind of open to change in ways that they might not have been before. One of the people who was op- who was apparently open to change was you. Yes. Uh, because you, during this period, decided to uh, step out of the CEO role and become executive chairman. Can you tell us why you're doing that? You're not retiring. You're way, way, way too young for that. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much for calling me young. I will I will keep that with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, while we shared this it kind of during the pandemic, to be honest, this has actually been in the in the works pre-pandemic. And so Elizabeth, I actually met a couple of years ago, but over the course of the pandemic, we've been forced to divide and conquer. So Elizabeth has already taken on a lot of the operational things. I think this transition will be kind of an extension of the way we've already been operating for the last six months. And what it allows me to do to bring us back there is to really focus on those things that like, I don't want to say keep me up at night, but the, the things that kind of like irk me and bother me of like, I wish I had five more hours in the month to do this, or I wish I had 10 hours in the month to do that. And a lot of those things really are in the realm of social impact and sustainability. And, you know, there's been elements of our model that are on the leading side of sustainability, where we use data to buy the right product, where we use data to manage our inventory well, so that we're not creating more product than we 
need to. And our model inherently is predicated on the fact that like, this isn't fast fashion. Like if you are only going to buy one pair of jeans in a year, we are going to be a phenomenal partner to help you find that one pair of jeans that's going to fit you really well. But there's a lot of things that I wish we could be doing more of. And so, you know, some examples are there's not a lot of fabric recycling that happens in the United States. And I'd love to better Mm -hmm. understand why. And can Stitch Fix be a part of that solution? And this really, you know, allows Stitch Fix to have the best of both worlds of being able to allow me to be able to do these activities that I think really will create a lot of value for StitchFix and will be meaningful to our employees and our clients. And at the same time, to have an incredible leader who's leading the day-to-day of the business. And you're referring to Elizabeth Spaulding. I'm not yeah. sure we said her last oh, name before. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Elizabeth Spaulding. Exactly. Yes. Okay. That's terrific. Can you take us back to the IPO, which was such a heady time? You were at the time the youngest woman to bring a company public, and that record has been shattered in a wonderful, wonderful way. And I know that you're a, a huge fan. We can talk about that. I'm curious about what that experience was like for you and what you have learned and how you coach other women company founders as they bring their businesses forward because we're not we're not where we need to be in terms of funding and financing and and support are we not even close we are not and you know i think it's so interesting because I think my perspective on a lot of these ch- things kind of evolved and changed over time where, you know, I don't think I really considered myself a feminist until more recently, honestly. And I, mm. I think I kind of bristled at like, oh, being like a top female founder, like I kind of bristled with just feeling like I should just be a founder and not labeled as like a female founder. And so interestingly, my thought process on these have, things have changed in I would say in large part, actually, from that IPO, the moment that was photographed and shared of me holding my son, who was at the time about one with the whole team. And, you know, that was that was really a meaningful moment for women out there. Many men actually pinged me about that, too, where I think it was just a really meaningful moment that. I didn't anticipate. I didn't plan. Like we didn't orchestrate. You didn't plan that. to be a role model. I hadn't. And, and so to be able to hear from so many people literally across the world about what that meant to them really to me revealed how important it is that we have these examples that people can visually see. And it was so great to see Whitney, who you alluded to from Bumble, who went public earlier this year and to be able to see her and her son up there in a similar way, just like, warmed my heart of being able to feel like this is the new normal. Is it the new normal? I mean, we're talking two, you and Whitney Wolfert. <laughs> well, journalists would call that a trend. That's a trend as far as I'm concerned. And here's the thing, you know, and this is where I go back and forth because I get that it's two. I also, when I was applying to business school, I was looking for, there was a question in the essay section that was like, who's your role model? And I spent a ton of time researching and looking and trying to figure out like, who can I say is my role model? And back then they were basically zero, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though it's just two, the fact that there are little girls and little boys out there that can look at that and feel a connection to that, I think is super important. Now, of course, the question is like, why is it two and why is it not? half. This is about systemic challenges of representation. Like you still look at the VC world and even honestly, the public market investor world too. Like, you know, now I'm, or public 
company. And so I am still across the table raising money from investors. And I am thrilled that every now and then we have women. Every now and then we have people who are underrepresented minorities on the other side of the table. But there is a massive lack of diversity in terms of who is picking winners. Yeah. I, mean, I was fortunate that like that there was not, you know, potentially a white man next to me who had raised $200 million to start a competitor to Stitch Fix because I was only able to raise less than 50. And if you raise that much money, you have a lot more money to bring on talented people to make tons of mistakes. Like you could flop four times and still succeed if you have $200 million in the bank. And so, you know, the decisions yeah. that this very small group of people, these investors that are, you know, public and private, frankly, who are deciding who are going to be winners and who are going to be losers are ultimately deciding who are the future leaders going to be? Who are the those people on the who are taking companies public and whose photographs are getting out there and what company cultures are being created and where are our kids going to work and where are our friends going to work and all of that is kind of seeded by this really small group that still lacks a ton of diversity and so I feel really fortunate that we were successful despite of a lot of those challenges that we faced I'm happy that there's now been a few more women who um, I mean there was Whitney but there's also been actually many women who have taken companies public in the last couple of years, many more than in the past prior decades, I believe. Um, and so I'm happy to see that happening. But I also feel like I can still look at that group of investors at the top and still feel this like burning desire that we need to be addressing representation in a more meaningful way. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, one of the surprises we saw in 2020 in the midst of a lot of bad news was some good news, an acceleration in the adoption of digital technology. Do you think that's going to continue once the pandemic goes away? I do, Alan. And I would say that the cause for optimism is warranted. There are going to be some pretty significant dividends that come from the massive acceleration in all things digital. And as we move into a post-pandemic world, we're going to see significant benefits to the economy from the big digital transformation investments the companies are making. I think we're going to see big benefits to people in terms of quality of life as we see new models for working that allow greater flexibility, greater productivity. So on the whole, I'm pretty optimistic that there's a path out of this and that as we emerge, that there will be some bright spots, albeit coming from a pretty dark moment in time. So people were forced to innovate in 2020 because an extreme change of circumstances was forced upon them. But can they keep up that pace of innovation? Well, that's the challenge for all of us as leaders. I saw a great quote in one of your interviews recently, Alan, that in this period of time, change was free because the alternative to change was even worse. We all have to look back on the way in which we moved so quickly, we broke some glass, we didn't let corporate bureaucracy get in the way, and it actually benefited all of us significantly and leverage that mindset going forward to act more quickly, to be less inhibited by risk, and to see the true benefit of embedding digital transformation and an agile mindset within the way that our organizations operate on a go-forward basis. Joe, thank you.
Katrina, your mother was a Japanese immigrant. You were born in San Francisco. Your father was a doctor and you wanted to be a doctor. So at what point, because if we're going to have more women entrepreneurs taking companies public, uh, they have to understand this moment. When did you decide, no, you know what? I don't really want to be a doctor. I want to build a business. So the head of surgery at UCSF was this woman, Nancy Asher. She's still at UCSF and she was awesome. I mean, she is still awesome. Like she's just a boss, but she is herself. And like, I remember thinking like, that's someone I want to be like. And so honestly, like, I think that had a big impact in terms of where I gravitated towards when I was younger. And so I was on that path. I went to Stanford. I was pre-med. I did my human biology as my minor. Luckily, I did economics as my major, which I kind of stumbled into. I took like an econ one class and I was like, I like this mix of math and the real world. This is interesting. And so, you know, that was kind of how I fell into having that major of economics. But I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but to be honest, the moment that I realized that I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a doctor was actually I was volunteering in a hospital and it was actually just like the work setting of being in the hospital, of being mm. around sickness and wearing scrubs all day. And just there's just something about that work environment where I, I just didn't feel totally comfortable. And I was like, is this really how I'm going to spend like the next 50 years of my life is in a setting like this? And so it was actually just experiencing what that environment where that was going to be like that actually raised questions in my mind where academically I really had liked it, but I wasn't sure if that work environment would be for me. And I kind of postponed that and thought, well, I have this economics degree. I can get you know, a different job. So I got a job in consulting in business and kind of tried that out for a couple of years and just kind of fell in love with it and fell in love with a kind of combination of creativity and, and it's still academic and data oriented. And so, um, so that was really how I got there. You should bring it all together by having Stitch Fix solve the ugly scrubs problem. <laughs> you know, there's a company <laughs> called Figs, which I think is going public soon. That was founded by a woman who was in my business school class, which is actually solving that problem. That's amazing. You can, you can tackle the hospital gown next, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to ask you, you know, creative problem solving and thinking about the world and what we understand about people. Um, Alan and I spent a lot of time together and on this podcast just really trying to imagine the future that's coming to us of a hybrid future um, and more equitable future. And to your point, we are particularly worried about women in the workplace, black women, Latina women, breadwinning moms. Everybody got slammed. You know, so many breakthrough moments of parity and equity and income and just all of it demolished during the pandemic in a kind of an alarming way. How do you see this unfolding? What do you see are some of the key moves that people can, other leaders can think about as we start to get back to whatever's coming next? Yeah. I mean, it's a really complex question. And, um, and it's one where I do think business leaders can do a lot to support, but I think it's also one where all of us have to be asking our elected leaders these questions because, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of this is about policy and these are societal challenges that we all need to work together to solve. And so, you know, I do think that one thing that we have been really thoughtful is just like, how can we actually promote more equality in terms of parenting and also just making it easier for, for employees who are embarking on parenthood. And so um, we have a 16 week parental 
parental leave policy, which is for men and women at Stitch Fix, and it's for our entire population. It's for people in our warehouses. It's for our stylists. And that's really important because, you know, I think one of the things that I observed when I had my first two children was how important it is for each partner to be able to be involved in those early stages, because that sets the stage for like later on who's changing the diapers and who's taking naps and potentially who's going to stop out of the workforce because the kids are more comfortable with that person. Right. And so setting that stage of kind of equality early on is super important. And that universal parental leave that we brought forward. And I've seen a lot of other companies do that, I think is really important. You know, what we haven't seen as much is to see that kind of in the hourly population. And so I think, you know, being able to think about like, how do we, there's a lot of benefits and cool things that happen at tech companies for people who make a lot of money, but not everybody is able to benefit from company benefits like that. Certainly, I think that's one big thing that, you know, childcare is just a really, you know, has been so top of mind during this pandemic of just like the burden of childcare and the impact that it's had on women in the workforce, especially how do we make childcare more affordable? How do we make it more universally accessible is Mm -hmm. that's a really big puzzle piece as we think about like, how do we actually promote greater equity? in the world. We could probably spend the whole rest of this podcast talking about what all the other challenges are. But, you know, I mean, there's no question that this time period has made it acutely obvious to us, I think, the things that we need to be doing differently. Yeah, the challenges are huge. But uh, Ellen and I love having the opportunity to talk to people like you who don't see challenges as obstacles. (laughs) You just (laughs) blow right through them and and overcome them. And, And I wonder what advice you would give to women thinking about starting their own business? What what are the things they need to know that you've learned building this wonderful $4 billion business that you've built? First and foremost, I do think it is to like build a company that you want to work at for you know, the next 10 or 20 years. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily thinking about equity as, as as a pillar of our business, but I was actually thinking about like, what would I want in a business? And, you know, thinking about like, well, I want to be able to have kids and for it to not disrupt my career. Like that was super obvious to me that that was going to be important to me. Another one, which is actually a little bit related to the prior topic is like pay equity. You know, I hate to admit this, but it's like, you know, talking about pay and banging on the table for pay was not something that I really wanted to do. I just wanted to get paid fairly and I wanted to have trust that I would get paid fairly. And so one of the things that we do uniquely at Stitch Fix is that we philosophically, we don't really have room for negotiation. Like we pay people what the market rate is for that role. And so the, you know, the pros are of this are that we are really reducing any opportunity for bias. And so, you know, the flip side is that we don't actually have a lot of opportunity to pay differentially. And so we are not allowing managers to say like, Hey, Ellen is $5 better than Alan. So we're going to pay Ellen $5 more. You know, when I was in all these other jobs, like I remember feeling like, Like it was so subjective, like, oh, this person is better than that person by this much. And, you know, there's so much bias that gets drawn into that. And so to be able to create a company with the values that are important to you, thinking about perhaps the injustices that you experience and trying to think Mm. about how do I solve for those. And so so I think that's first and foremost, super important. And the other one, this is just general advice for founders. Like, you know, I think that you you really need to have diversity in the founding team. Sometimes I'll talk to kind of a very homogenous group of co-founders that really value diversity. But like, let's be honest, like the founding team is usually the ones that generate, you know, the most wealth from any outcomes. And also like diversity begets diversity. And then the last thing, which is like, 
at the end of the day, people, and this is investors, this is your employees, people want to hear the dream. Like they want to hear the vision. They want to hear the crazy, impossible things that like are actually possible for you in the company. And I was just, you know, not shy away from that. Like, you know, I'm a very practical person. Like I like my numbers to tie. I like spending time in Excel. And so I would say it was a little bit of a muscle that I had to develop <laughs> to like get people to believe, to sell the dream of just like the crazy possibility that we could do, you know, I think that there's, there's some dreams that we hold in the back of our mind that we might be like almost afraid to say out loud because it might jinx it or it might be crazy, but like people love that. People want to hear it. And I would bring people along on that. Well, Katrina, everybody believes the dream now. <laughs> uh, you, you have convinced us all. And I certainly am looking forward to what you do with this new position. Glad you're turning your attention to some of these bigger industry-wide and worldwide uh, social problems. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 